turning to the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans, the third chapter, reading verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just and justifier. For Jesus' sake, God is both just and justifier. Everyone instinctively knows that justice matters. When someone commits a crime, is obviously guilty and walks away from court unpunished, we instinctively feel that this is wrong. When someone receives a promotion at work that has not deserved it, we are irritated. When someone in a sport commits a foul, gains an advantage, but no penalty is imposed, the crowd is outraged. You can hear children on the playground protesting, that's not fair. In a movie, we are relieved when justice triumphs. In politics, we are enraged when something that is wrong is never righted. We have an instinctive appetite for justice. This comes from our conscience, from the fact that we are created in the image of God. We are a reflection of God himself. Our desire for justice is an indication of what our maker has created in our conscience. In this passage, Martin Luther calls this section of Romans the chief point in the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. This paragraph is that central to the Bible. It's about God's justice, his fairness, his righteousness. Among other things, it asks the question, is God fair? We want to approach this text under three headings. The supremacy of God's justice, the scandal of God's mercy, and the solution of God's son. supremacy of God's justice. The theme of this paragraph is stated in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There's a great deal in this verse about us, some of the most precious, wonderful, and relevant truths that we could ever consider. But this passage is more than about our salvation. It has an overriding theme the greater sense, it is about God and what he has accomplished, what he has done. 
It's about how important it is for God to be just and to appear to be just. The righteousness of God is revealed. This is repeated in verse 25, to demonstrate his righteousness. Then also in verse 26, demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. The righteousness of God is the dominant theme of this passage. This is one of the major truths of the Bible. God is good. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. This righteous God rewards the good and punishes the evil. Never to the slightest degree does he confuse the two. He himself said in Exodus 23 verse 7, Keep yourselves far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. I will not justify the wicked. That would be an unrighteous thing to, for God to do. God urges his people to imitate him, to reflect this quality. So we read in Deuteronomy 25 verse 1 about the work of the judges, which was to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Not the reverse, never to condemn the righteous, never to justify the wicked. This is reaffirmed in Proverbs 17 verse 15 which says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. For the wicked to be justified is something that God hates. It is against his holiness, it is against his justice. He declares his anger against those who commit such an abomination. Although people are often unjust, we innately know that justice is right and injustice is wrong. People who are not ashamed of much would be ashamed of being accused of injustice. We know instinctively that this is right. God should be fair. He should be just. The thought of an unrighteous almighty being is one of the ultimate horrors. We would say with Abraham, shall not the judge of the of all the earth do right. God's righteousness, God's justice is supreme and unchallengeable. He must be just. From the supremacy of God's justice, we next think about the scandal of God's mercy. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10 and verse 20, 23, we read, there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are wicked. Every person has sinned. No one is righteous. The only exception is our Lord himself. God has said that he will not justify the wicked. Exodus 23.7 However, we read that those who believe are freely justified by his grace. Verse 24, Romans 3. They are sinners and they are wicked. Nevertheless, they are justified. Justification is much more than forgiveness. The scene is of a law court. The criminal is on trial. The evidence against him is absolutely overwhelming. The case is proved beyond a shadow of the doubt 
the criminal himself has pled guilty. The judge rises to pronounce the verdict. The verdict is not only not guilty of all charges, that would be a huge scandal itself, but also, I find him righteous. He is not only innocent of every charge, but admirable, holy, good, commendable in every way. Westminster Shorter Catechism 33 tells us that in justification, God pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in his sight. This guilty criminal leaves the court without a stain on his character. Even more, he departs with the praise and commendation of the judge. Is that fair? Is that just? Too often, we take forgiveness for granted. We're so familiar with forgiveness that we forget how shocking it is. Forgiveness is astounding. If we think of it as something natural and inevitable, we're thinking like Heinrich Hein, the famous 19th century German poet who allegedly spoke these last words. Of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Hein thought that God's purpose is to forgive everybody. Even more blasphemously, the 20th century English poet W.H. Alden cynically said, I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. Even to some degree, among the people of God, we fail to marvel at the wonder of forgiveness and justification. This is due in part to our failure to grasp the infinite, terrifying, blinding holiness of God. We do not understand holiness. We do not think about it. We do not reflect that our God is a consuming fire. Before this God, the angels themselves covered their faces. We act and speak as if it were a little thing for God to forgive, a natural thing. We fail to come to terms with what the Puritans called the plague of plagues, the odiousness, horribleness, and wickedness of our sin. Professor John Murray writes, The reason why the gospel of justification is to such an extent a meaningless sound in the world and in the church of the 20th century is that we are not imbued with a profound sense of the reality of God, of his majesty and holiness. And sin, if reckoned with at all, is little more than misfortune or maladjustment. We don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand the hideousness of sin. Without meaning to, we take these things as a matter of fact, this is the hope of the man in the streets, if he thinks about God at all, that he can ignore God all his life and can break God's commandments. And somehow at the end of life, because God is love, God will simply forgive him and pardon all his sins. We need to let it sink into our minds how shocking it is for God to act this way. What would you think of an earthly judge who did this? A judge who lets an obviously self-confessed criminal walk free from court with words of commendation, does not deserve to sit on the bench. He is an unjust judge. Instead of 
diminishing the contrast, the Bible makes it more startling. Paul writes, Romans 3, verse 24, that we are justified freely. The Greek word for freely means for nothing, for no cause, for no reason. The same word is used in John 15, 25, where our Lord is quoting Psalm 69, verse 4, they hated me without a cause. Paul is saying here that we are justified freely, without a cause. There is no cause in you. There is no cause in me. There is absolutely nothing in you or me that could persuade, induce, or enable God to justify us. There is nothing. If someone were to look at you or me and ask, why has God justified that person? The answer is, there is no reason to justify, but every reason to condemn. God justifies us without a cause in us. In Romans 4, Paul speaks of King David. David has gone far into sin. He's committed adultery with Bathsheba and has had her husband Uriah murdered. Yet David says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. David is stating, I have sinned, but God is not going to count it against me. I have taken another man's wife, but God will not reckon this sin against me. Isn't that a surprising statement? God is described in Romans 4 verse 5 as he who justifies the ungodly. Imagine yourself at Calvary, beholding Jesus and the two men on either side of him. Now also imagine that standing at the cross in the crowd and observing is a scribe, an elder of the synagogue. He has never believed in Christ. He has rejected him. However, he is a good husband. He is a kind father. He is an he is regarded as an honest, upright man who has done his duty. He is not a believer, but he is a moral, respectful man. Hanging on one of the crosses is the Osama bin Laden of his day. This man is a terrorist, not just a thief, but a murderer. He was arrested along with Barabbas. Before the end comes, Jesus says to this terrorist murderer, who has never done a good deed for God, who has never in his life obeyed one commandment, the Lord says to this wicked man, Assuredly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. However, the respectable, moral, upright elder is cast into the flames of hell forever. Isn't that surprising? Isn't there something scandalous about the phrase, him who justifies the ungodly? It makes no sense to us. In fact, it seems wrong. Doesn't God seem to say one thing but do another? He says, I will not justify the wicked. But then he does justify the wicked. At first glance, this seems to be a massive inconsistency. Isn't it a scandal? We are outraged when a drunk driver or a child molester goes free. Is this what God does? 
The Roman Catholic Church accused the reformers of the error of legal fiction. How can God declare you just when in fact you are still sinful? Isn't this a fiction and unworthy of God? It seems to make God a liar. There are intelligent, serious people who believe that justification by faith is profoundly immoral. They have a point. This upset people in Paul's day. They thought it was a subversive and unethical teaching. Roman Catholic theologians throughout history have protested, if you tell people believe in Jesus and you will go to heaven, what sort of religion is that? What sort of God is that? You don't even have to try to be good. The charge that is brought against the doctrine of justification by legalism is that justification is immoral. Think about this. Never take justification for granted. Justification is a marvelous miracle. How can God justify the wicked without God's character destroyed? How can he be both just and justifier? thought of the supremacy of God's justice, the scandal of God's mercy, we come to the solution of God's Son. Paul writes in Romans 3 verses 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Propitiation means something that turns away anger. Here's an illustration. A wife asks her husband to be home at a certain time. She's making a special meal and they have invited friends. However, he gets busy, he forgets the time, he realizes an hour later what he has missed. The meal is ruined. His wife is upset. As he opens the door, he reaches around an expensive bouquet of flowers. That's his propitiation, his attempt to turn aside wrath, to turn aside anger. God is angry. Psalm 7 verse 11 records, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. How often do we hear that God hates the sin but loves the sinner? That is not accurate. Sin is not an abstraction. It cannot be separated from the person who commits it. God is angry with sinners fiercely, intensely angry with them. He has a right to be angry with them. If you are not in Christ, God is angry with you. His anger burns against you at this moment. There is not only something in us that needs to be resolved, there is also something in God that needs to be resolved before there can be peace between us. One of the Puritans said, the God who said, let there be light, could not say, let there be forgiveness. 
he could create all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, but he cannot speak forgiveness into being. Justice has to be satisfied by the appropriate punishment. Every transgression, for every transgression, the penalty must be paid. Only then can God fairly and righteously lay aside his anger toward us. And the gospel tells us this has happened in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, whom God set forth as a propitiation. The word propitiation is used in the Old Testament of the mercy seat, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant, which was in the Holy of Holies. On the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled on the mercy seat by the priests. In Romans chapter 3, Paul speaks of what results from the sprinkling of blood. God's anger is satisfied. God's wrath is pacified. That satisfaction is the result of the blood of the Son of God. This is the great principle behind the Old Testament sacrifices. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. This is the explanation of the death of Jesus, the Son of God. His death was a propitiation. Paul writes in Romans 5.9, Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.19 that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. John writes in 1 John 1.7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Here is the payment. Here is the propitiation. The infinite Son of God, the perfectly righteous one, by his life and death atoned completely for all the sins of those who trust in him. The punishment was fearful unimaginable in its extent and intensity. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. He did not spare his own son, Romans 8.32. The penalty was fully imposed, the price was fully paid, God's justice was utterly satisfied, the Savior cried, It is finished! As Paul writes in Romans 3.24, we have the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Martin Luther stated, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and have given to me what is yours. You have taken upon yourself what you were not, but have given to me what I was not. Our justification is wonderful, but there is something more wonderful. Our justification means that God can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our Lord took our sins upon himself. All the gospels stress the remarkable and striking silence of him at his trial, the silence of the Lamb. As Isaiah 53, 7 prophesied, as the sheep before his shears was silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Gospels record five times that Jesus kept silent or answered nothing. Why did he answer nothing? Because he was guilty. Two charges were brought against him. 
that of rebellion against Rome and that of blasphemy against God. Those represent the sins of Adam. He rebelled against his maker. He sought to be like God. We say it carefully. As our Savior took upon himself our sins, as he became sin, the sin-bearer, it was just for God to punish him. He was not an innocent party because he was bearing our iniquities. Therefore, it is equally just for God to forgive us because our sins have already been punished in Christ. It is a glorious solution. God himself has satisfied his own justice in himself. God has been true to himself. God has not denied himself. The cross is the vindication of the character of God. He is at the same time inflexibly holy, terrifyingly, and absolutely just, and at the same time infinitely and graciously merciful. The psalmist says in Psalm 85 verse 10 that mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. He is both just and also justifier. It is often alleged that the idea of propitiation is incompatible with divine love. and That is why it is left out of so many modern translations. However, there is not a shred of linguistic evidence for its omission. In fact, propitiation is the supreme evidence of God's love. As John wrote, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 Do you understand how the glory of God is revealed at the cross? Behold the breathtaking, unimaginable way in which the holy God can forgive sinners. It brings us to our knees in worship and humility. Zacharias of Sinus, in his commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism, wrote, The blood of Christ is the satisfaction on account of which God receives us into his favor, and which he imputes unto us, as it is said, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, both of commission and omission. The following illustrates the unique satisfaction of the blood of Christ. In one of their periodic efforts to eradicate religious beliefs in the Soviet Union, the Communist Party sent KGB agents to the nation's churches on a Sunday morning. One agent was struck by, a deep, by the deep devotion of an elderly woman who was kissing the feet of a life-size carving of Christ on the cross. Babushka, he said, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? Of course, she answered immediately, but only if you crucify him first. It is an unrivaled wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ that no other God bears wounds. If you are not a believer, do you understand how utterly impossible and unthinkable it is 
that in yourself you should ever be forgiven. It cannot happen. It will not happen. Do not delude yourself. Do not think that somehow at the end God will lay aside his justice and deny himself when his only son has borne sin. The Father punished him to the full. The righteousness of God is that which he cannot compromise because he cannot deny himself. The righteousness of God requires the condemnation of everyone not in Christ. I urge you to flee from the wrath to come and to reach that moment when you know that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, perhaps you are deeply troubled by your sin, by your sinfulness. Perhaps you're unsure of forgiveness. You know that God is merciful but you're not convinced that you can be forgiven. One of the martyrs burned to death in 1855 under Mary Tudor of England was the mighty preacher Hugh Latimer. In one of his famous sermons, he wrote, Our Savior maketh our sins nothing, so that we be like as if we had done no sin at all. Our sins be gone. They are no sins. They cannot be harmful to us. Heidelberg Catechism, question 60, asks, How art thou righteous before God? And the answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have never kept, that I have sinned against all the commandments of God, and have never kept any of them, and am still prone to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin, and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such with a believing heart. Here are two quotations from cautious and careful men. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on Romans, writes, If the righteousness be adequate and if the imputation be made on adequate grounds and by competent authority, the person to whom the imputation is made has a right to be treated as righteous. John Murray, in Redemption Accomplished and Applied, writes, the righteousness of Christ is the righteousness of his perfect obedience, a righteousness undefiled and undefilable, a righteousness which not only warrants justification of the ungodly, but one that elicits and strained, constrains such justification. God cannot but accept into his favor those who are invested with the righteousness of his own son. Isn't that staggering? There may be something can be confusing about the phrase limited atonement. Do you understand what limited atonement means? There's something odd about saying, using the term limited, about the death of the Son of God. Although it is limited in design, it is not limited in value or in worth. A probing question a candidate for the ministry might be asked is, 
If God the Father had elected more, would God the Son have had to suffer more? The correct answer is no. Because of the infinite value of the atonement. 17th century Reformed theologian Francis Territon writes, We cannot doubt that the satisfaction which he has made is one of infinite value and efficacy. Charles Hodge notes, The work of Christ is a real satisfaction of infinite inherent worth to the vindictatory justice of God. There is enough worth in the death of Christ to redeem a million worlds if it had so been God's purpose. Do you believe that God regards you as if you had never sinned and always obeyed? John writes in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice what John does not say. He does not say faithful and loving, or faithful and kind, or faithful and merciful. All of those things are true. But John says faithful and just. He forgives us because he is just. The atonement for sin was accomplished in the death of Christ. Christ paid the penalty for sins. Therefore, it would be unjust for God not to forgive those who have true faith in Jesus Christ. A militant atheist once asked an old Scottish lady, What would you say if after you trusted Christ, God were to cast you away at the end? She replied, I, he would lose more than I, he would no longer be just. Think about it. Apart from Christ, God's righteousness threatens us. God's righteousness terrifies us. The sinner is scared that God is righteous. But in Christ, the very same righteousness protects us, assures us, consoles us, comforts us, and convinces us that we are saved, not just because God is merciful, but because God is just, holy, righteous. God is true to his word. James Buchanan in his book, The Doctrine of Justification, writes movingly, What unspeakable peace may dawn upon the soul when it is enabled to see that the same justice which might have been glorified in the punishment of the sinner may now be more glorified in its pardon. Isn't that great? When God receives us into heaven, the angels are not only going to say, God, you are loving. God, you are merciful. They're also going to say, God, you are righteous. God, you are just. Buchanan goes on. All of the attributes of God, which were formerly arrayed against us, are now in Christ the firmest ground of our confidence and hope. We want God to be absolutely righteous. We want God to be absolutely just. We don't want him to overlook sin because Christ paid for sin. Canon says, the flaming sword of justice that once menaced us has been converted into the shield and buckler for our protection and defense. The righteousness of God, that is the solid ground, the divinely provided and approved ground of our justification, what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
As J. Gresham Machen dictated a telegram to his colleague John Murray, which were Machen's final words, he wrote, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, no hope without it. We trust in God's mercy, we trust in God's love. Now in Christ, we trust in his justice. We rejoice in his justice. We praise him for all eternity that he is just. In our salvation, God is not only infinitely merciful, but also infinitely righteous. This vanishes, vanquishes the fears of the believer. If you are in Christ, God is both just and justified. August, Augustus Toplady, 18th century Anglican clergyman, who was a major Calvinistic opponent of John Wesley, wrote the following insightful poem in 1777. From whence this fear and unbelief hath not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost thou hast paid whate'er thy people owed. How then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? If thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, unto thy rest, the merits of thy great high priest have bought thy liberty. Trust in his efficacious blood, nor fear thy banishment from God, since Jesus died for thee. That he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Having thought about the supremacy of God's justice, the scandal of God's mercy, and the solution of God's Son, are you absolutely clear and convinced that your righteousness is the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus only, his life, his death. With new realization, use those glorious words which so often conclude our prayers in Jesus' name and for his sake. It's not just an appropriate conclusion. It's one of the greatest pleas you can offer Dear Lord, I ask you to forgive me in Jesus' name and for his sake. If you can sincerely request this, you have God's salvation because you are trusting in the righteousness of Christ. For Jesus' sake, God is both just and justifier. The Ballad Prayer. Our gracious God, we are so weak in ourselves, we cannot stand a moment. Our deadly enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, assail us without ceasing. Be pleased to preserve and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may make firm stand against our enemies and not sink in this spiritual warfare until finally we come at last off with complete victory. How we praise you that for the sake of Christ, 
you will no longer remember my sins, nor my sinful nature with which I have to struggle with all my life long, but graciously imputes to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never more come into condemnation. So may your words, being both just and justifier, illuminate and rejoice the hearts of those who can hear. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.